live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Here is the deal. Let me kind of go through what we know, and then I want to discuss this with you. It's just mind-boggling, and it might not technically be illegal, but if it's not, it should be. The reality is no car insurance, no problem. Nuts to that. Let's get them off the road. Impound the cars. Make the streets safer. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. What are those people talking about? You got a deal. A deal is a deal. Stop whining about it. Live up to its obligations. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So, Gru, you changed the open while I was gone. Okay, good. I, I like it. So, Eric Bilstead, we were on vacation. I, I posted a couple pictures. We were in... Um, I was Cato Kalin in it. I was kind of like America's house guest. Like we, <laughs> okay. we, we went, we went, well, you know, if people are going to be kind enough to invite me to stay at their places, no, you know, it. and versus $400 a night in a hotel room, you know, I, so makes we, sense. a week ago Saturday, we flew down to Fort Myers, Naples, and we stayed with our friends Mike and Kathy in, in Naples for three days. And then we stayed with our friends uh, Dale and Maggie in Fort Myers for a day, and then took the ferry from uh, Fort Myers to Key West. I've oh, never cool. done that before we really was it's great just a great way to go and then um we don't know anybody we could stay with in key west so that that was out of our own pocket at the hotel but just just had a great week in in florida i i I know the weather was crummy back here so i i was i held off to the very end posting like vacation photos but if you follow me on twitter at jeff wagner 620 there's a couple pictures of fran and i at the um we're down at the at the buoy which is the southernmost part of the united states in key west it's i i'm it's kind of like the big tourist thing but you know we took a couple pictures there and that that's posted and then there's uh, another picture. I really, actually, I might blow this one up. It's me at mile marker zero. You know where the where the road ends. Oh, cool. So, so it's very cool. But we had a, a very good trip. We were again being like America's house guests, and and Key West is my happy place. I do have some advice though. Now, you know, you and I are, are married guys and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, my producer grew, of course, is getting married. Yes, you know, yeah. in in the fall, and and my only advice would be if you're if you're thinking about taking some of your guys, you know, for like a big bachelor's party in in Key West, I I, I do you you need to be a little bit cautious because when you see spectacular women on the street there, you you got to be very careful because there's a good chance that like all the really good lookers are either going to be Russian hookers. Or guys, <laughs> oh, okay. so so write that one down. Yeah, write that one down. So tell tell some of your tell some of your buddies that if they're if they're slow dancing with what they think is this really attractive young woman, and you know they they notice that something seems a little bit unusual. It's because it probably is. You know, it just, right. noted. It just it just probably, you're you're sitting at one of these outdoor restaurants and you go. Huh, that's really a stunning looking woman walking by, but I don't think it's a woman. <laughs> you know, mm. so, so just again, word word to the wise. Russian hookers or like like guys. Yeah, so, but otherwise we love Key West. Well, welcome back, by the way. You look great. Look <laughs> like you got some sun and enjoyed yourself. Yeah, it was it was it was very nice. That was kind of our, our happy place. And again, I didn't post too much stuff because I know the weather with no you know, when you're on vacation and it's it's crummy back home, nobody wants to hear about that. <laughs> just, I I get that, but um, you know, we, we had a very good time and, and we're back. A lot of stuff going on 
Matter of fact, I I did post some things on Twitter. I'm going to try to be a little bit more aggressive about that. Um, Twitter postings and including some things we'll talk about on the program, but also sometimes some some pieces that I, I find as I'm doing research for the show that even if it's not going to make the show, I, I nevertheless think it might be interesting or thought provoking, even if I don't necessarily agree. So um, you can follow me at Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty, and we're I'm going to try to make more use of that. All right. I, matter of fact, one of the things I posted this morning, I just want to offer an observation about it. The um, While I was gone, you, you had two horrible situations of people killed by by drunk drivers. The one story involved the just-appointed dean of the business school at Marquette University, um, who was crossing like Wisconsin Avenue around 10th Street, an area that if you drive downtown at all, you got to be familiar with. And apparently uh, a woman driving drunk. The, the dean the, the was, was, I guess, I think crossing against the light is the sense I get. But you had a woman who was drunk driving at a high rate of speed who hit and killed him. Just a, a, just a, a horrible, horrible tragedy. The other story, and I, I posted something like this on, on Twitter earlier this morning, and it's it's... It's something that I've been saying. I don't want to say I told you so about this because it's there's nothing good to be gained about it. But if you've been listening to this program over the last couple of years, I have regularly railed on on the panhandlers that stay out in the median strips, um, you know, begging for money. And it's not so much an anti-panhandling thing. That's that's a whole different story. But it's that it, it's just a danger. I mean, I've watched this time after time, and that area where, at least that I notice, and it's particularly bad, is that area right as you're getting off the freeway, St. Paul, like around 25th Street, right as you're going over to the bridge to go, for example, to Canal Street and the Pottawatomie Casino. There, there's that That's a haven for people who panhandle. And I just I've always been concerned about that because it's just a recipe for somebody to get hurt or car accidents. If somebody slows down to give somebody money and then the person behind them doesn't notice it, it's just been a recipe for disaster. And it, by the way, in Milwaukee, it is illegal to panhandle on median strips. And and that's. It's it's not enforced that often, and this isn't an indictment of the police. I understand, Lord knows, in Milwaukee you got a lot of stuff to do, but it's it's a situation which is dangerous. And of course, the other, you know, drunk driving situation, and I, I've sent this out again on Twitter at Jeff Wagner six twenty. You have a, a guy who is presumably both drunk and drugged. I mean, he's he's admitting to snorting heroin and smoking pot and drinking beer. He's He's parked, I, I think, like up St. Paul Avenue, passed out behind the wheel of the car. He, the car then starts rolling down the hill, and there is a guy presumably panhandling in the median strip who is then hit from behind and killed. And and it's just, it, it's a tragedy. I mean, the victim in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, but again, I, I raise this question. How many more people have to be injured or die before we realize that it's not only illegal, but it's dangerous to stand in the road and ask for money? Now, again, I I understand in this case, the victim, he was in the wrong place, period, and he was certainly there at the wrong time. And that's not making any excuses. The the driver, like I say, drunk and or drugged or probably both. And so he deserves whatever he gets. But... 
you know, if somebody hadn't been standing in the roadway in the median strip panhandling, it, it, they wouldn't have been in a position to get hit by the drunk. And so for everybody who says, oh, this is harmless, Jeff, you make too much of a deal about the people who stand there and panhandle. No, it, it's dangerous. And, and this underscores that whole situation. All right. When we come back, I know it has probably presumably been discussed elsewhere, but given the fact that I I just got off a couple airplane trips, fascinating video. It broke last week and there is an update on the story. This is the woman who's upset because she wasn't able to recline her seat on American Airlines. If you haven't seen the video, I've got a link to it again on my Twitter account. You can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. If not, I will describe it and we will discuss in just a moment. The Wagner Show continues. Stick around. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Now, I have no horror travel stories from my my vacation. We flew from Milwaukee to Fort Myers on Southwest. The flight left at the appropriate time. It got in. No incidents on the plane. Rental car was there. Drove around. No problem. Ferry ride from Fort Myers Beach to Key West was fine. The flight on Saturday back from Key West to Milwaukee, fine. So no no problems at all. It, it went as smoothly as you can possibly imagine. That is not always the case. And if you are a regular listener to this program, you know that I have been one from time to time who rails on the idea of people cramming into these little, tiny airline seats, and they are tiny, and reclining. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And maybe this is my perspective being, you know, 6'1 and 200 pounds, 204 pounds, actually, that, that it's just there, there's not much room to begin with. And then much less, you know, once somebody wants to recline back into you, because uh, what you do is it cha- starts a chain reaction that either, you know, you're going to sit there with your knees pressed in or you're going to have to recline uh Further, I mean, I'm kind of like, just just tough it up. The seats really, I don't think, even though they do recline, are big enough to do it. So in any event, here's the story, and perhaps you have seen the video. If not, like I say, I've got a link to this up uh, on my Twitter account, at Jeff Wagner 620. What happens is it's a plane flight from um, New Orleans to Charlotte on January 31st. And there's this woman, her name is Wendy Williams. And she gets in her seat. She's an American Airlines. I haven't flown American in ages, so I don't know how big the seats are. But my guess is they're like most airline seats, which isn't too big. She gets in, and she decides she's going to recline into the space behind her. Well, the guy behind her looks like a relatively big guy, and he he's not letting her recline. He's tapping the back of her seat. You know, he, she describes it as punching. I mean, it looks to me like he's tapping it. But, you know, when she tries to recline, he's tapping it, so she's not able to do that. She becomes hacked off. She starts to video this. She also goes to the flight attendant and complains, and the flight attendant is not too terribly sympathetic to her. So now she's all hacked off, and the update on this is the woman who says her reclined seat was repeatedly punched by an airline passenger sitting behind her. She now wants to, wait for it, press charges against him. She says he should be charged with assault for wrapping the back of my seat so I couldn't recline. What's more, she said the attendant on the American Eagle flight 
should be fired. I want to know who he is. I would like to press charges against this man. I was assaulted on this plane. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. She says not only was she aggrieved, she wants the flight attendant who did not come to her aid fired, and she wants this guy criminally charged because he wrapped the back of her seat repeatedly, stopping her from being able to recline into his lap. 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. She wants charges. I think she should get used to disappointment. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Now, in a perfect world, you'd like to think that, you know, people would be able to work it out. This woman was insistent on trying to recline into the guy's lap. The guy was equally as insistent on not allowing her to do so. She wants him charged. I think this is, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh, yeah, absurd. And I will confess, I will confess that while I've never, like, wrapped the back of a seat, when somebody has occasionally tried to recline into my area, I have... I don't know. I've kind of locked my knees in place, not allowing them to do that. And I don't think it's assault at all. All right. Does she have an absolute right to recline? And by wrapping the back of her seat to discourage her from doing this, did the guy actually assault her? In other words, is she a victim? My answer is no. Unfortunate the two of them could not get along, but you know what? I think it takes two to tango, and maybe if she would have just kept her seat locked in in the first place, we would not have had this problem. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What say you on the issue of reclining? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back with your calls in just a second. This is Jeff Wagner. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us, Chris in New Berlin. Chris, you're first. Hello. How are you doing today? Good. What do you think? Uh, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit here. First of all, the guy really should not have been beating on that thing, and he's lucky that I wasn't sitting in front or I would have punched him. I, I know that it's impolite to recline back, but the airline is creating a situation where chairs recline, and yet they do nothing about someone has a problem when the chair reclines. That is the airline situation to solve the problem by making chairs that don't recline or handling it if someone chooses to recline because they do. Let me ask you this. And the yeah, airline let, flight attendant chose not to handle it. Let me ask you this. Let, let's say that I'm the guy in the back row and somebody's trying to recline into me. Do you think I have a right mm-hmm. to cross my legs in such a not, I'm not talking about hitting the back of the seat, but in that space that is in front of me, I cross my legs so I make it impossible for that chair to recline. Should I have a right to do that? You and I agree that it's impolite to recline and impolite to stop someone from reclining because they're both not just working it out and being nice to each other. We agree with that. But if those chairs do recline, the airline has created a situation where there's going to be problems. They should not recline, period. And the flight attendant refused to handle the situation when someone's beating on it, and my neck could basically get injured by someone just beating on a thing on a regular basis. Well, I understand. So I would have... Yeah, you said you would have punched him. <laughs> I get that. Which, which would have escalated yeah. Well, I would have asked the flight attendant first. I would have had her solve it, him solve it. If that, barring that, I would have taken care of it myself. I'm not going to have someone basically... You know, if someone's hitting me okay. in the back of the head on a regular basis, no. I'm I understand, but if if you then stop reclining and the guy stops pounding on the back mm-hmm. of your chair, does that end it? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Now, thanks. I say, now, I, by the way, I agree. I think in economy class, I think they should take away the, the right to recline. I, I, I just do because I think that they've cut down the space so much, and that avoids this entire issue. So, I mean, I would be all in favor of that. Now, if you're an economy plus or business class or something, it's a, it's a different story. In that case, the reclining isn't as, as big a deal. But I guess... I think let, let's put aside the wrapping the back of, of the chair. He wasn't hitting her head. He was he was he was pat, pat, patting the back of the chair. I, I don't know that that's any different than what I like. I say I've done from time to time, which is position. I cross my legs, and and that seat isn't coming back. You know, you can keep trying to jam it back as much as you want, but it's not. I guess I'm thinking, okay, that's that is my space. I don't think anybody's necessarily in the right here, but to charge to guy criminally, as far as I'm concerned, this lady should probably just you know let let this one go. Kate in Manitowoc. Kate, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. Well, I was reading that um, this gentleman had asked her to uh, put her seat up while he was eating, and that once she knew he was done eating, she put her seat back, you know. And so in her mind, she's saying that she did exactly what he had asked her to do. And so for him to respond like that is just um, kind of childish, really, I guess. Do you think it's rude to recline your seat into somebody's lap? And again, in the in the economy I class do. where you got yeah, see, I, that's I guess that's kind of the bottom line. I mean, I, mean I, I just I understand. Thanks for the call, Kate. Just because you can do something, and I understand the airlines allow you to do it, as I often say, doesn't mean that it is the right thing to do. It, th- did the guy overreact by wrapping the back of her chair repeatedly? Yes. Did she? You know, instigate this by trying to recline into somebody who I believe was in the back row. I don't think this guy could have even reclined at, at all. And like I say, I, I've been in this situation a lot of times. The airlines, I think, would do everybody a favor by just simply saying, we've cut down on the leg room. There's not enough room to recline anymore. We're not going to allow people to do it, just like we don't allow people to smoke on airlines because it disturbs other people. As far as criminal charges, though, for goodness sakes, do you know the things that you can get away with in this country and not have criminal charges brought? Tap in the back of somebody's seat when they try to recline into you. Sorry, I, 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 no, that's an easy one if I'm the prosecutor. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> Well, these two guys are were in for a rude surprise. Is it overkill? Here is the story. Happens a couple weeks ago. You got these two clowns who are apparently heroin addicts. One David Swenson, 30 of Oak Creek. Huh, you got criminals in Oak Creek. Did we tell Scafidi the mayor about that? And his partner in crime, Solian Demby, 31 of South Milwaukee. They decide what they want to do is they want to shoplift because they want to steal a bunch of liquor, and they want to then use it to trade for heroin. So they decide, you know, we, we, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to do it in Milwaukee County. So what they do is they decide they're going to drive up to Grafton. So they drive up to Grafton. They go to this pick-and-save in Grafton. They go in, and they steal uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 700, 650 to 700 bucks worth of booze, five bottles of tequila, nine bottles of assorted whiskey. So they steal it, they take off, they start heading for the freeway. Well, <clears throat> the authorities catch them. 
because this is Ozaki County, not Milwaukee County, where you know pretty much do whatever you want. So they get caught, and they're figuring, well, what's the worst that can happen? They said, hey, you know, we we thought, okay, we come up to Grafton, we steal this stuff, they're going to give us a citation for shoplifting, which they probably would have no intention of paying. To their surprise, that's not what happens. In fact, they get arrested on criminal charges, and the DA's office whistles them in. They charge one of the guys with felony bail jumping because he's out on paper for something else, and then they charge him misdemeanor theft, possession of drug paraphernalia. The other guy charged with retail theft, resisting or obstructing an officer, and possession of drug paraphernalia. But the bottom line is they decided, authorities up in Ozaki County, hey, we've got these two yo-yos that come up here. They steal you know, $675 worth of liquor. We're not just giving them a ticket that they're going to throw out the window and never pay. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. The, the, the guys decide to, to talk to the cops, and one of them said, well, they decided to come up to Grafton because they knew it was a nicer area and they thought stealing stuff would be easier. Both were surprised, according to the police report, when they were told they would not be receiving a ticket and were being arrested on criminal charges. Now, I have a link again to this story at, on my Twitter account at, at Jeff Wagner 620. But, you know, what ends up happening here is... Once you get outside the the friendly confines of John Chisholm's Milwaukee County, authorities, I don't know, take things a little bit more seriously, perhaps. And in this case, you know, even petty crime and, you know, $650 of theft is, is, you know, I mean, that's pretty, that's petty theft. But these guys were shocked that they were charged. Our number. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's my question for you. Is this overkill by Ozaki County authorities? I mean, all they did was come up here, come up to Ozaki County, head into Grafton, and, and, you know, steal 14 bottles of liquor from, you know, a Grafton pick-and-save. They just thought that they were going to get a citation. Next thing you know, they're in the criminal justice system. And by implicitly, they're arguing, hey, if we had done this in Milwaukee County, well, we weren't going to get charged with anything. It's John Chisholm's Milwaukee County. This this should have been just a citation. Imagine our surprise when we find that, you know, we're now being charged with all these things, including bail jumping. Was this overkill? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't rob anybody at gunpoint. They didn't endanger anybody's life. All they did was steal some booze. From my perspective, I applaud the Ozaki County District Attorney's Office, and I applaud either the Sheriff's Department or the Grafton Police Department, whoever it was that made the arrest, because you know what? I think this idea that people from Milwaukee County can commit crimes in Milwaukee County and walk away, I think that's one of the things that's led to the crime going on in Milwaukee County. And this notion that you should be able to travel to the suburbs to commit crimes and that, oh, it's going to be easy, we're not going to get caught, and even if we do get caught, there's not going to be any problem, I, I think... 
I think, good for the suburbs, good for the surrounding counties by saying it doesn't matter if you're a resident or it doesn't matter whether you're somebody who's traveling from somewhere else. If we catch you doing this stuff, we're not going to look the other way. And yeah, even if it's only a misdemeanor, we're still going to charge you. I say good for those authorities. Is this overkill? Is it a waste of police resources? My answer would be no. And maybe it sends a message to other people. Hey, you know, don't come out to Ozaki County or go to Washington County or go to, you know, wherever, Waukesha County. Don't go there and commit crimes because you think it's going to be easy picking. I say good for the authorities. What say you? We discuss in a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, very glad to have you with us. Let's see. No, it's not overkill. Maybe if Milwaukee County would take crime a little more seriously, there wouldn't be quite as much crime. A slap on the hand is not going to get a criminal to stop doing what he was doing. Maybe being arrested won't either, but at least it might make them think twice about doing this. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's the whole thing. Um, let's see. Uh, dot, 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 dot. Um, the welcome to Ozaki County was overkill by the crooks. That's exactly right. Jeff, this seems appropriate to me. It was premeditated. They don't seem remorseful. There's a high likelihood that they will do it again. Yes, it is. And here's the text that I like the best. Proud to be a Grafton resident. Yeah, I, I think if you were to ask I don't know, a a thousand randomly selected Ozaki County residents, if they think it's appropriate, if you have a couple people who one at least is on on bail, out on bail for some other crime that comes up to their county and decides that they're going to steal a bunch of liquor from a store, do you think they should be criminally prosecuted instead of simply given a citation that they'll probably never pay? I think... I'd say about 995 out of the 1,000 Ozaki County residents would be say, would say, yeah, exactly. We think it's the right thing to do. And by the way, all right, if people come up and do it again, all right, that's the charge we want. Let us switch gears. While I was on vacation, lots of conversation about Michael Bloomberg. Now, look, I, I don't know where the, the Bloomberg campaign is going to go. I, I don't know if... You know, come Super Tuesday, he's going to be able to take momentum away from Bernie Sanders. Don't don't know how that's all going to play out. And and candidly, I'm kind of conflicted about Michael Bloomberg because there are honestly some policies of his over the years that I have have liked. And there are policies of his that I haven't liked. And frankly, he's not as whacked out as like some people like Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders are. So if you decide that Donald Trump can't win re-election, I'm not making that prediction, but if you decide that that that's the case and you don't want to see this country turn to an 80-year-old socialist, I mean, Bloomberg might be, I say might be, an an interesting alternative. But now the long knives are out. So, So now you've got the Democrats are starting to fear him and you've got Republicans that are starting to fear him. And one of the big stories that came out was, Bloomberg is a racist. Let's look at some of the things he said when he was the mayor of New York. When he was the mayor of New York, he championed this policy called stop and frisk, where the police were aggressively flooding high crime neighborhoods. And and the idea is if they found reasonable suspicion, what they do is they would stop people. They'd ask permission to frisk them. And they found a lot of guns, things like that. Um, 
ultimately the way they did it was overkill. There were some lawsuits that found that they were, you know, applying this unevenly to, you know, blacks as opposed to whites, and they had to back off it. And and Bloomberg has apologized for that. All right. But but here's what he said at the time. He said, for example, he gives this interview, and he at the time, this is 2015, he's defending it. He said, look, here, here's the reality. He said, crimes in New York City when I was the mayor were committed overwhelmingly by young male minorities and that it made sense to deploy police in the minority neighborhoods where crime rates were the highest and to throw them up against a wall and frisk them as a deterrent against carrying firearms. He says 95% of your murders, murderers and murder victims, fit one M.O. You can just take the description, Xerox it, pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, ages 16 to 25, both murderers and murder victims. He says that's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. He went on describing policing tactics, saying, we put all the cops in minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. All right, now he's being denounced for being a a racist. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, he's backed off on on the way they ran stop and frisk in in New York because they, they were over aggressive with that and i think they were um you know they they treated persons of color differently than they treated um whites all right so let's put aside that problem with stop and frisk but his basic comment concept of yes we are putting police in the high crime areas and that happens to be i mean 95 percent of the murders murderers and murder victims fit one mo you can take the description, Xerox it, pass it out to all the cops. Male minorities, 16 to 25. That's true in New York. That's true in virtually every city. Um, we put the cops in minority neighborhoods. That's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where the crime is. All right, let's tee this up. Is, is that he's being denounced by both Republicans and Democrats? Oh, this, this is incredibly racist. Well, okay, is it racist? Or is there an element of truth to this? Now, again, I'm not going to defend stop and frisk the way they did it in New York. But but as a general rule, if you're the mayor of a city, don't you want to target your criminal justice efforts? Don't you want to emphasize the police presence in the areas where it's the highest crime? And if that turns out to be areas that are heavily a minority, what difference does it make? I mean, don't you want to go to where the murders are, where the shootings are? I would argue it doesn't make any sense at all. For example, let's say you had a Milwaukee County. Let's say the sheriff's department was charged with dealing with street crime. It, it's not. But, okay, if, if you wanted to deal with homicides and you're the Milwaukee County sheriff, do you flood the streets of River Hills or do you flood a high-crime zip code in the city of Milwaukee? And, and is it racist if you do that? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, I'm not defending stop and frisk, but all these people scream, oh, this is terribly racist. I, I think, I mean, isn't there an element of truth in what Michael Bloomberg 
was saying, maybe not as articulately as he could, but don't you want police presence in the high crime areas? Let's start with Tim in Fredonia. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Jeff, good Hi. afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, sir. You know, here, Jeff, here's the deal. I'm, like I told your screener, I'm a 0% Michael Bloomberg fan, okay? And you have to go. You have to police it. Jeff, what he said, if he had the data and the numbers by studies to back that up and crime actually went down, which it did, I yeah. don't care, Jeff, if you were going to flood if you were going to flood the streets of River Hills for, for uh, you know, for heroin because all the uh, all the affluent white people had heroin or it was an epidemic, and you flood, we I'd be totally fine with that, yep. Jeff. Here's the deal: if it's getting crime and you know getting criminals off the street and it's doing some good and making the city safer as a whole, I particularly don't have a problem with what he said and i think most people in their right minds again people are trying to create something racist jeff that actually isn't there that's just my opinion no tim thanks, i, I jeff, think i, I mean no I, th- thanks for calling I, I mean and i think you're right and and okay what look where the crime victims are that's what he's saying okay the people who are being killed and the people who are killing them it is in these predominantly now was he as articulate as he could have been probably not but but don't you you know don't you want to go where the crime is back Back in the 80s, when I was chasing drug peddlers in the U.S. Attorney's Office, okay, the, what happened is you had this epidemic of crack cocaine that brought broke out on, on the streets. And what you had is you had rival street gangs that were not only selling the drugs, but they were going to war with each other, and they were shooting each other, and they were shooting random people. All right, okay, one of my jobs was, okay, go prosecute the people that are dealing crack cocaine. Go after the gangs. And I, I don't care about what the racial makeup of the gangs was. Trust me, if I had, if I had that going on in, in River Hills or in Sheboygan, I would have been delighted, you know, to spend the time there. But, okay, most of that was going on in the streets of Milwaukee. And so that's where you targeted a lot of your resources. To me, it only makes sense. And, and again, I, I understand that people are always going to want to find racism. And I'm not defending stop and frisk as implemented. But I think it would be insane for any police chief or any mayor to say, all right, we're not going to send law enforcement resources and mass into the areas where we have the highest crime. Scott in Milwaukee. Scott, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking the call. And I am going to defend him. I am. He said that in frustration. Um, I'm, I'm still voting for Trump, but what he said as a mayor at that time even today, what our mayor should be saying is the same thing. But he said that in frustration, and that is a reality. Mm-hmm. You can't find racism in statistical reality. Yeah. No matter how, how hard you, you try to find it, it's, it just isn't there. Right. I, you know, we've got, we've got an issue. <laughs> we, we, got, we got people being, we got fathers being shot on the sidewalks yeah. on the north side for crying out loud. Do I want stop and frisk to be uh, to be implemented in Milwaukee? No, I don't want it. But does it need to be? Absolutely needs to be. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I keep. Love, com- 
it's got to keep coming back to this one sentence he says he's getting all this criticism for. Quote, we put all the cops in minority neighborhoods. Yes, it's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. Now, that's where the crime is. Right, right exactly. now, he's, now he's, he, he's over general. It's not where all the crime is, but statistically, I, I mean, and you could well, say the same okay, thing in Milwaukee. 97% of it. Right, right. Well, it's right. You, you, look at, you look at a zip code map of Milwaukee, and you look at where the homicides and the majority of the violent crime is, and it's going to be in a couple zip code areas, which tells me that's exactly. where you need the largest police presence. And I don't care whether it's black or brown and or I, green or blue. It's just get them there or white. Get I them. would love to hear. I would love to hear from the law-abiding residents. I would love to hear from your law-abiding residents who live on the north side and would and the south side. I would love for them to call in and get their opinion because those are the people that I feel the most for. Right. Right. No, thanks for calling. You know, and again, I, I mean, I just, it was always, I, I'm going back to my experience, you know, and when you, you have, look, let, let's take a drug house. You have a drug house that moves into a block. It changes the complete total character of the neighborhood. It, it just it does. It changes a safe neighborhood into a dangerous neighborhood. You've got people coming and going. You know, it's just you, you, you know, so, OK, if I'm closing down drug houses, I, it's it's the number one, get the criminals off the street. But it's for the benefit of all the decent tax paying people who are living on that block or the next block or a block over. And again, it doesn't matter what neighborhood it is. You go where the crime is. Now, again, stop and frisk. If you look at the way it ended up getting implemented, they had some problems with it. All right. But that doesn't mean he's wrong in saying, hey, look, you know, we, we concentrate on our efforts in high crime neighborhoods. And if you looked at where the shootings and the homicides in New York City were, you can just Xerox off the description. And again, it's not everyone, but I think as long as statistically he's right. And I, again, there were Republicans that were criticizing him for this. There were Democrats that were criticizing him this for this. I was going, look, I, I come on. If he's telling the truth, now he's backed off on stop and frisk, and he's uncomfortable with it after defending it for years. But if the idea is, should we be flooding high crime areas with police, and should we feel guilty about it, my answer would not only be no, but hell no. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Let's go into the prize closet. Let, let me root around here and, and dig something out. It, it's it's an award that we give every once in a while. Let's see. Where is it? No, let's move the bowling ball. Let's move the golf clubs. Oh, there it is, Gru. Producing the show today and always. It's the Weasel of the Week Award. Let, let's pull it out. Now, actually, to be fair, I was on vacation last week, so this is the Weasel of Last Week Award. So who is the weasel of last week? Well, in this particular case, it, it is clear. It's easy. The weasel of the week from last week, and there's really not a second and a third place. It goes to the chairman of the Milwaukee County Board, Theo Lipscomb, who is running tomorrow in the election. He wants to be the county executive. Why is Theo Lipscomb the weasel of the week? Well, all right. I always reserve the right when I take positions. It's based on the information I know at the time. But I always reserve the right to modify them based on, I don't know, newly discovered information as it was. You will recall, and we talked about this extensively, 
you will recall that Lipscomb was the guy that blew the whistle on two other potential challengers for county executive, um, Jim Sullivan and Brian Kennedy. Right? What what Lipscomb did is he said, "Hey, look, they don't have enough valid nominating signatures on their nominating petitions, and they should be disqualified." Remember the story: to get on the ballot, you need two thousand valid signatures. You're allowed to turn in four thousand. Right? Getting enough signatures should be easy. And, and, you know, back back in the day, you know, you and a couple of your volunteers go out and you spend a couple hours on a Saturday or Sunday in Milwaukee County, and, and you're going to be able to get 3,000, 4,000 not valid signatures, right? You're, you know, you only need 2,000, right? Apparently, that's not what these candidates do anymore because the campaigns are, number one, lazy, and number two, what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out a way to legally, mind you, spread money, particularly in certain areas of the county. So what they do is they hire organizers to go out and to get signatures for them. All right. This is this kind of outsourcing, which, number one, means they don't have to fool with it. And number two, they can curry favor with some of these community organizers by throwing them some money. Here, we'll hire you to go, you know, get the signatures. And then, you know, maybe you'll like us and you'll help us introduce us to other people. So it's a way of it, it's. It's a way of paying off people potentially for their support. And I don't mean it's criminal or anything like that, but it's sloppy, it's lazy, and it leads to problems. So we all know the story now. What happened is the state law is very clear. It is extremely clear that you can only circulate petitions for one candidate for any particular office. And if you circulate petitions for multiple candidates, the first candidate you did it for, they're good. Everything else is invalid. So Kennedy and Sullivan, they hire one of these community organizers who goes out and hires a couple circulators. And one day the circulators go out and they circulate nominating petitions for one candidate. Then the next day they circulate petitions for Kennedy. Then the next day they circulate petitions for Sullivan or however the order was. And the, the law is real clear that those signatures they got after the first candidate aren't valid. And so they turn a bunch of them in. Lipscomb blows the whistle on the practice. He says, look, th- this is what they did. And I, I sat here. I defended Lipscomb was getting all sorts of heat for this, and I defended him. I said, oh, look, he's, he's just saying, you know, what the law is. And, you know, he should not be criticized for pointing out the fact that these guys were lazy and they were sloppy and that they didn't have enough signatures. All right. I stand by that. There's, you know, if you engage in this practice, you know, you even if you don't know that you're being hornswoggled by the people that you've hired, that it's it's tough toenails. That's just kind of the way it works. So I was defending Lipscomb about criticism for at least blowing the whistle on this other practice. Well, I just sent a link to this out on Twitter. Again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. Story that um, Journal Sentinel, I think Dan Bice, yeah, Bice broke it. Okay, it turns out that the weasel of last week, Theo Lipscomb, who blew the whistle on these two other guys for using this practice, he did the same damn thing. He did the same thing. He hired 
you know, one of these community organizers to go out and have circulators to circulate petitions. And as it turns out, several hundred of the signatures that he turned in would have been invalid if anybody caught it because, you know, they were obtained after they obtained signatures for one of the other candidates. Now, they, I think the numbers were 301 invalid signatures because of who circulated it. He still turned in enough to keep him on the ballot. But but the fact, and he, by the way, when he was raising these challenges, in all the media comments I saw, and I'll stand corrected if I'm wrong, I never once heard the weasel of the week mention that, oh, by the way, I did the same thing. Matter of fact, I don't even know if he had done it, but he engaged in the same practice that he criticized other candidates for. Now, maybe not as bad, but at the same time, it's kind of like being sort of pregnant. You know, should he be taken off the ballot? No. Even if somebody had caught this, he would have still had enough valid signatures, which differentiated him from Sullivan and from Kennedy. They, They relied on the practice more. But... He did the same darn thing that the other people did, just not quite the extent of it. And is it still legitimate to raise this as an issue? Yes. Is it slimy and sleazy in the extreme (laughs) to blow the whistle on some of your challengers without at least acknowledging that you had engaged in the same practice, just not to that degree? And the answer to that is is clearly yes. Now, I... It, it it really looks like the inside track to this election is going to be uh, Chris Larson, who is this uber-liberal um, state senator right now. That, in my opinion, would be disastrous for Milwaukee County. And the truth is... Sullivan or Kennedy would probably have been a better choice for county executive, but they screwed up and they deserve to be off the ballot. I don't fault Lipscomb for raising the issue, but raising the issue when you engaged in the same practice that they did, it doesn't speak very well, at least in my opinion, for your character. And it clearly, a day before the election, earns Milwaukee County Supervisor and Chairman of the County Board, Theo Lipscomb, he's the weasel of last week, and there's not a second or a third place. When we come back, my God, she might still not be going away. Stick around. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. One of the guys that got knocked out in that race, Brian Kennedy, who wasn't going to win anyway, said... uh, Lipscomb proved himself untrustworthy by not coming clean about his own signature problems. While he was pointing fingers at other people, he should have been turning those fingers right back at himself, said a bitter Kennedy who personally put $10,000 into his now defunct campaign. Um, Again, um, it's just I, I don't I don't know about where the ethics or the morals of. But what Lipscomb did. Weasel of last week, not even close. I don't know. My guess is he probably doesn't finish in the top two um, in the primary tomorrow. That would just be my guess. All right. As we talked about in the first hour, just kind of briefly, Michael Bloomberg, former mayor, Republican mayor of of New York, but eh, he really wasn't a, a Republican. He's now running as a Democrat for the presidency. He spent over $350 million running television advertising. He hasn't been in any of the debates. He hasn't been 
at the Iowa caucus. He hasn't been on the ballot in New Hampshire. He's not going to be involved in the Nevada caucus on Saturday. I don't think he's in the South Carolina primary, but he's he's going to be on the ballot for a lot of the Super Tuesday stuff. And if you look at the national polls, Bloomberg is is, is moving up. And what's happening as Biden falters more and more mainstream Democrats who are scared to death that, that Bernie Sanders might be the nominee because Bernie Sanders, he, he's going to get about 25 percent of the primary vote. But by picking up delegates, when you've got this split field, 25 percent is enough to have you finish first in a lot of these primaries and amass delegates. And the concern that the Democratic Party has is that Bernie Sanders is going to be the one guy who can't beat Donald Trump. Plus, you put a socialist at the top of the ticket and it is going to devastate you know, down ballot races, races for U.S. Senate, races for Congress. And, you know, there's a kind of a valid concern with that. So more and more people are starting to say, OK, could Bloomberg be an alternative? The other interesting dynamic that's going on with Bloomberg is the fact that he, he he's bought himself over the years a lot of insulation. But by that, I mean. For example, there, there's all these stories about, you know, how he, he said all these horrible things about women and things like that. But but yet, you know, he gets invited to speak to, like, Emily's list. And, and why? It's because, you know, he puts tens of millions of dollars into electing Democrat candidates, almost all of whom are women. And so it, it's tough for, you know, Emily's list, who's taken all this money, to, to break bad on, on Bloomberg. And, and so that's... That, that's the same thing. He, he's out there. He's getting a lot of credibility, even though he's not your, your typical sort of Democrat, because he's, he's thrown a lot of money around over the years, and that, that's helping him, which is only inflaming the Bernie Sanders people. So over the weekend, the story that, that breaks is the fact that internally the Bloomberg people are, are, taking, are doing polling, and their internal polling is finding that – a ticket um, of Mike Bloomberg with, wait for it, Hillary Clinton would be a quote-unquote formidable force. Bloomberg's communications director did not deny this rumored matchmaking effort. They said, well, we're focused on the primary and the debate, not vice president's speculation. But, but it is kind of out there. On the Hillary Clinton side, um, source familiar with Clinton's thinking said she hasn't closed the door on politics and would seriously consider joining a vice presidential ticket. She wants back in, the source told Fox News. On top of that, um, they're both from New York. And apparently when she was senator from New York and he was the mayor, that they had a, a good working relationship. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I don't know where the Bloomberg candidacy is going to go, but does the Hillary, does the, if Hillary Clinton joins the ticket as the vice presidential candidate, does that make the ticket stronger, or does it guarantee that Bloomberg isn't going to win? 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bloomberg, Clinton, Hillary, that is, is that a winning ticket? I will tell you where I come down on this in just a moment, but I'm curious as to how you react. What do you think? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. Is it a pair to draw to? Mike Bloomberg, Hillary Clinton, Susie in Port Washington. Susie, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, If Bloomberg would happen to win the nomination for president, which I don't think is going to happen, and if he were to take Hillary as a running mate, that would just absolutely throw the whole election for him. There are so many people that really don't like Hillary, um, and Bloomberg has such a history of um, weird policies, I want to say, without being really crass about it. Um, there's also such a, an, an, an uh, Okay, so you don't think it would be so a net You don't think it would be are, positive. You don't think it would be a net positive. No, absolutely not. There's too many people that have joined the Trump train. There are too many people that have seen what Mr. What President Trump has done for our country, has made it great again. And they are behind him all the way when it comes to immigration, yeah. you know, when it comes to. Um, OK, well, Susie, the, I, think, I, I don't want, I don't want to focus on Trump. I, I want to talk about Bloomberg. 855-616-1620. But I, having said that, I agree with you. I, I I don't know what the question exactly is, but in my opinion, Hillary Clinton is not the, the answer to that. I don't think that she brings anything but baggage to the ticket. Now, it may very well be that that if Mike Bloomberg gets the Democrat nomination, I'm not making that prediction, although a lot of people, a lot of Democrats, especially from the very far left, are worried about that, that here you have this kind of carpetbagger who was a Republican mayor of New York, who whom now, I mean, he's, in some respects, you can argue that he's got a lot of the same characteristics that Donald Trump has, except, you know, from a left-wing perspective. So a lot of Democrats are, are worried about this. But to me, adding Hillary Clinton doesn't do anything. Now, if you wanted to say, all right, I, I, I want a female vice president, I, I, I think that that, that might be great. And, and there's certainly, uh, you know, a number of candidates out there. If the Amy Klobuchar campaign ultimately, you know, fizzles, which I think it's probably going to be, I, I think she would be an incredibly desirable vice presidential candidate to have, um, especially if, you know, it's a more moderate president that's running. So, I mean, I, do I think, do I think it's out of the realm of fashion to say, okay, go, go get, bring in a female? Uh, no, I, I don't. But, but to me, First of all, Hillary Clinton is yesterday's news. I, I think that you have people that have such strong opinions about her. And I understand that there's people who really love her. But those are the people that were going to vote for any Democrat anyways. Um, the, the reality was, and I think that's one of the lessons of 2016, is that people, particularly in a lot of the key states, weren't really that into you know, Hillary. Plus, you know, they're they're both from New York. You you have no geographical balance on this. No, I, I think it it's fun to float these ideas, I guess. But, you know, a, a younger female, I, I could see as a, an attractive compliment to Bloomberg. Hillary Clinton, I don't think so. Mike in Milwaukee. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, uh, Jeff, I was telling you, uh, Drew, that uh, the only reason, the only drawback, well, maybe two, that I can see to a Bloomberg-Hillary ticket is... Uh, both, as you mentioned, are from New York, and also uh, the age factor. Uh, you know, you'd probably want a, a person who's a yeah. little bit younger. Uh, the other part is uh, I don't think that the fact that Hillary would be on the ticket's a drawback because, let's face it, she beat Donnie by 3 million popular votes. Yeah. So uh, all this uh, this um, Yeah, but that's not how we pick the president. So 
but that's not. Oh, how I we, know that. Yeah, I mean, that's not how we. I mean, th- I mean, again, I, I just. I mean, that that's not how we pick the president. I was. Oh, oh this. I, I hate to admit this. When I was on vacation, hotel room. My wife, my wife likes to watch like the first ten or fifteen minutes of the View, and, and I just, she just does, she just does. And it was one time last week, and Joy Behar, who just, eh, Joy Behar. I, I don't mind hearing from the opposite side. I just don't think she's that smart. And, and she was just going on and on about, well, Donald Trump really isn't the president. He really didn't win the president because she won the popular vote. And actually, Meghan McCain said, for God's sake, would you stop saying that? I mean, that's not how we pick the president. So, I mean, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote because she racked up huge vote totals in California. But it doesn't matter whether you win California by one vote or you win it by five million votes. It doesn't matter. You still get the electoral votes. I just, I, I think this might have been a fun trial balloon, but if I'm Mike Bloomberg and I'm sitting down and I'm saying, okay, what really is Hillary Clinton going to bring to this ticket that an Amy Klobuchar or, you know, fill in the blank, you know, somebody else wouldn't bring? And, and the answer is Hillary comes with a lot of, a, a lot of baggage and there's nothing wrong. All candidates bring some degree of baggage, but you know, Hillary, they're steamer trunks, you know, other candidates, you know, maybe they're, they're lightweight carry ons. Just saying. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay. When, when I was on vacation last week, I, I made a point of, first of all, like not posting vacation photos until the very end, because I was saying at the start of the show, if if you're people don't want to see other people having fun on their vacation, especially when you're in somewhere warm and you know and it's cold and it's it's crummy here. But I, I did post a couple of us in, in Key West at the very end of the trip. Um, but I, I also I kind of made a point of saying, look, I'm on vacation and I I would spend a little bit of time checking in on the news. But typically when I'm on vacation, it, that's I, I, I'm not really focused on that um but but i made an exception for for two things one i'll talk about in the two o'clock hour and, and secondly this thing in the story involving the the shorewood village president grew who's producing the show did, did Warris talk about this at all i'm sure he probably mentioned it it, it sounds like right up Warris's yeah. alley <clears throat> if you were to go to your library take the dictionary off the, the shelf go to the t's and look at the word train wreck you would see a picture of Allison Allison Rosick, the village president of of Shorewood. Because if this lady isn't a train wreck, she will do until the next one comes along. The headline caught my attention, even on vacation. Shorewood village president's run-ins with police suggest she has been living in West Dallas. Okay, now there's a lot to unpack there. Okay, because first of all, she's the Shorewood Village president, and she's having run-ins with the police. So she's the top elected official in the People's Republic of Shorewood. Run-ins with the police. Hmm, that's kind of interesting. And then you add the fact that these various run-ins with the police suggest that she's not living in Shorewood. All right, so it's gotten my attention. Kudos to the headlines writer. The Shore, this is by Mary Spacusa. The Shorewood Village president has reportedly spent much of the last year living in West Dallas, and it has not been going well, according to recent police reports. That's a cute turn of a phrase. Allison Rosick, who was elected village president of Shorewood in April 2018, has been involved in several incidents in West Dallas. Well, at least if she's going to cause trouble, she's not causing trouble in in her neck of the woods. During the most recent incident on January 31st, 
Police were called by Rosick's ex-boyfriend. Okay, now I'm really interested. Because she was heavily intoxicated and refused to leave his property, the report says. So she gets drunk, and sh- allegedly, and shows up at the ex-boyfriend's place. After police arrived, she initially told an officer that her name was Joy. The name is the one that she had been using recently on Facebook, Joy Semendal. The That account was deleted over the weekend. Huh. Okay, so now, now I'm really intrigued. So uh, people in Shorewood have got to be popping their buttons over this one. Okay, so you got the village president who's now using a... A pseudonym, a fake name, a nom de plume, whatever. All right, well, I guess if I was going to be showing up drunk at my ex-girlfriend's apartment, I'd probably be using a different name as well. Okay, Um, after an officer warned her that she could be arrested for lying to police and asked whether her name was Joy, she said, somewhat, according to the report. She later said Joy was her middle name. According to the report, Rosick also told the officer that she was the boss of the police chief in Shorewood. <laughs> okay. Don't you know I, who I am? I'm Joy, and I am the boss of the police chief in Shorewood. I'm pro- sure he's probably popping his buttons over that. Rosick told the officer that she was not currently living at the West Dallas house, but did five days a week for the past year. She did not respond to requests for an interview. She was absent from most recent sh- from the most recent Shorewood Village Board meeting. The latest incident in West Dallas involving Rosa came after two others involving her and a 52-year-old man who told police they had recently broken up. He told officers <clears throat> she had broken into his house and trashed it, according to the report. She also refused to leave his vehicle after an argument during a separate incident, he told police. Asked about the recent West Dallas incidents involving Rosick, Shorewood Village Manager Rebecca Ewald said, I really don't have anything to comment on. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> okay. This is what's going on. The elected boss at Shorewood, who is who is probably my boss since I'm the village manager. What do you expect me to say, reporter? Um, dot, 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 um, and then they go on. Ewald noted the state statute requires elected officials to reside in their community. She co-owns a home in Shorewood with her husband, Randy Rosick, according to online reports. Huh. But apparently is spending a lot of time at the boyfriend's house in West Dallas. Again, I, you know, it, it's one of these things where a lot of times when it comes to dealings between men and women, life gets as messy as a day-old sticky bun. I mean, that that's just it. And, and, and it seems like Allison Rosick, it seems like her life is well, kind of probably about as messy as, as a week old sticky bun. You know, just all these, these different messes that are out there. And again, I, I don't know what the, the deal is, but it does seem like, at least at the moment, at least at the moment, she's kind of a train wreck. <laughs> I think that's probably a fair sort of thing. And I do think it is interesting that it's okay for Shorewood to have an out of control, perhaps non-resident village president. But remember, this is Shorewood where the high school can't stage To Kill a Mockingbird. So we can't present the play To Kill a Mockingbird, but we can have this lady as our village president. Huh. Maybe priorities are a tad out of whack. Nope. Nope. Look up the definition of train wreck, at least for this week, and that's the photo that you are going to see. Back with more in just a moment, including, you packing a lunch for your kids? Well, some people think you should be guilty about that. Stick around.
Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. It's very good to be back. All right, I confess, when I was in high school, I used to bring a bag lunch every day. And and actually, my mom, now, I think as I got older, I, I ended up a lot of times having to make it myself. But my mom used, used to make my bag lunch for high school, and she'd put, a, she'd put a sandwich in there. Sometimes it was peanut butter and jelly. Sometimes it was, you know, ham, cheese, turkey, you know, whatever. And there'd be some chips in there, and there'd be an apple, and maybe, you know, there'd be like a brownie or a candy bar or something like that. And I'd take my little bag lunch to school, and, and th- that's what I'd eat. Every once in a while, you'd go through the lunch line, but I was perfectly happy with my, my bag lunch. There was a story in the New York Times yesterday written by a woman named Jennifer Gaddis, who, believe it or not, the headline says that she is an expert on school lunch policy. Hmm. wonder how you become an expert on school lunch policy. But anyway, she's an assistant professor of civil society and community studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Let me just stop for a second there. Okay, if I'm trying to think of, if you're trying to figure out ways to make a living in life, what are you majoring in? Well, I'm majoring in civil society and community studies. Huh. doesn't necessarily strike me as the most lucrative endeavor, but this is UW-Madison, so we apparently have, have people that, that do that. She has a big piece in the New York Times arguing that people who make their lunches for their kids shouldn't. The, the numbers right now, and I'm looking at it, is approximately 40% of students who are eligible, uh, student, 40% of students who could eat lunches, like hot lunches, at schools, don't. About 40%, four out of every 10 kids bring bag lunches. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't matter, again, whether you're from a wealthy, whether you, you could qualify for the free lunch, or whether you, you don't qualify for the free lunch. Um, about 40%, four out of 10 kids are sent with bag lunches. All right. She argues that packing lunches, like my mom used to do for me, might seem like the best option. But when millions of families do it, their actions reduce the political will and financial resources necessary to make public school lunches better for everyone. So let me explain what she's arguing. She is saying that if we stopped sending kids to school with the bag lunches and they were forced to eat the lunches that were provided by the schools. What would happen is there would be more political will to put more money into the school lunches. So in other words, stop sending your kid to school with a bagged lunch. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I rise to support bag lunches. Now look, I, I have... As a matter of principle, I guess I, I have no problem, you know, with cafeteria lunches that, that are there. But at the same time, I have no problem at all. Matter of fact, I think in, in most cases, I think it is responsible for the parents who have the means to do it to say, okay, I'm instead of subjecting my child to whatever the, the whims of the particular school lunch menu is going to be for that day, I know what my kid likes. I know what my kid will eat. And so, yeah, I'm going to take some minutes. I'm going to take a little bit of time, and I'm going to send them to 
I'm going to send them to school with, you know, whatever the lunch is that I think they're going to like. And you know what? I'm not going to feel guilty sending my child to school with a peanut butter jelly sandwich and a thing of potato chips or maybe a thing of Fritos and an apple. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. When you went to school or if you've got kids now that you are sending to school, all right, do you think you should feel guilty or ashamed or somehow, I don't know, a problem with the body politic because you're choosing to send them with a bag lunch? I mean, again, to me, that's what I grew up with. It's what I liked. And without even commenting on the quality of school lunches nowadays, whether they're better or worse than they were, I, I think this is a matter of complete and total individual choice. And candidly, I mean, nine times out of ten, I think you're just as good getting, again, that bag lunch. Matter of fact, you know, you can control, if mom and dad, you know, you can control kids' diets by sending them to school with that bag lunch. You let them go through the lunch line, and you you don't know exactly what it is that they're going to be eating. And yet, the expert and food nutrition policy says, well, if, if more people simply stop sending their kids to school with bag lunches, there'd be more pressure to put more money into school lunches, and maybe they'd be better. Okay, maybe, but... Okay, it's my kid, and if I want to send him to school with a bag lunch, I'm sure as heck not going to feel guilty. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And if you want to read the article, matter of fact, I did tweet it out um, on, on my Twitter account, at Jeff Wagner 620 Back to discuss in just a moment. Jeff, I've worked for 30 years. I still take a bag lunch. Great show. By the way, I take a bag lunch, too. It's in one of those little sacks, but no, my, my lovely and charming wife, Fran, every morning she gets up and she makes me... Uh, she because she she knows she's afraid I will eat crap otherwise, and so she you know makes this, and, and I'm perfectly happy with it. But I mean, if you're a parent, I don't think there's anything wrong with bag lunches, and I don't think you should be lectured by the food police or the press professors at UW Madison about how well if if everybody took the the school lunches, there'd be more pressure and there'd be more money put into them. Well, I'm going to tell my kid what I want him to eat. Chris in Cedarburg, Chris, you're on WTMJ. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm 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 you know, in defense of bag lunches here. <laughs> I am too. You know, my mom used to be a lunch lady, and half the time she would bring or pack me my own lunch, and then the other time if there was pizza or something good, some casserole that I enjoyed, I would get the cafeteria plan lunch. But you know, there may be um, financial issues or ethnic issues or food issues, so I think that's a freedom to pack your kid. You know, the lunch that. You right. know that they will enjoy and not throw in the garbage. You know what happened with, you know, Mrs. Obama with that whole plan. Right. And it yeah. didn't work out too well because they threw it away. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Hang on, Chris. I want to just share with you a text that came in. It said, most of the kids' middle schools and high schools now only serve the regular hot lunch for the day, but they also have a la carte. Two of my grandsons in one week went through $50 each because they didn't like the regular lunch. Needless to say, their mother switched them to bag lunches that they each have to pack themselves. It was just too much money. I mean, that, that's the other factor that's as well there. It's here. This is this is your lunch. I don't want to drop in 12 bucks a, a day for, for lunch. Right. And, and, you know, you know if your kid likes the lefto- leftover tuna noodle casserole or the leftover ham and cheese or whatever. So, you know, I just think it's up to the parent. And if there's an issue, okay, they they have a good meal plan at the school. But, gosh, pack the lunch. If that's what the kid wants, and at least he'll eat it and be happy, 
Yeah, e- do it. Exactly. No, thanks. I'm with you. Uh, Richard Watertown says, Jeff, I'm a professionally trained chef. I promise you the lunch I send with my kids is better than anything that they are getting at school. Jeff, we have three kids in school. Our oldest is a senior and will only take a bag lunch with healthy food as he's on the swim team. The reason is because of the low quality of food offered on the school plan. Now, see, I, see this is the point that I guess the, the professor from Madison is trying to make. If we If we didn't if parents didn't send their kids with bag lunches, there would be more pressure and more money spent on, on upgrading the quality of, of the food in the lunchrooms. And I'm not picking on the quality of food at lunchrooms, but that's kind of the point. I, I'm just saying that that's like, okay, well, we're not going to you to cook at home anymore. You know, it, it, this is the deal. You know, we're, we're going to force you to go out and, and spend money, you know, at restaurants because then you'll get better meals or something like that. Kevin in Franklin. Kevin, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, well, frankly, I think the idea of forcing parents to not pack kids' lunches is absurd. Um, I, I just I don't understand why you would say that because you're going to make kids eat the school lunch and they're not going to like it, therefore that lunch is going to have to improve so that the kids would like it. I, I just think that's absurd. Right, right. There is kind of a disconnect. The, the idea would be if, they're, if, if middle-class and upper-class parents – decided to buy the school lunches, it would put more money into the system, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. But, you know, it, right. I, I, I like turkey sandwiches, you know, and, and I, I like turkey yeah. yeah. I mean, give me an apple and some peanut butter and a turkey sandwich and some potato chips, and, and I'm happy, you know, and that's right. – and I think that's a decision that individual parents should make and not be guilted into saying, oh, you got to eat right. whatever they're serving. Agree. Yeah, no, thanks. Oh, not be, right, not be guilted into saying you got to eat whatever they're serving. Uh, let's see, David in Brookfield. David, you're on WTMJ. Hey, how's it going, Jeff? Real well, thank you. Okay, do you feel guilty if you – should you feel guilty if you sent your kid to uh, school with a packed lunch? How, I'm not going to tell people how to feel. I just know how I do. And to me, it's insulting. It's insulting that I'm being almost like made to think that the they are recognizing there's an issue with these alleged school programs and that only if we contribute to these programs, they'll improve. That That's an insult. I mean, it's also my own personal choice what I do with my own child or children. Right. I just I've never called. But I was so inspired by this story. I'm like, I'm like flabbergasted that this is even a, I mean to come out of UW too is a shock yeah well I mean it, it just it would just be this is what you know the experts in food policy say it would just be better if if everybody was forced to participate you know maybe that's true maybe that's not but I don't want to participate you know <laughs> I'm perfectly happy no thanks for, I'm perfectly happy Right now, and if we had a cafeteria here at Good Karma, which we don't, but if we had a cafeteria, you know what? Maybe some days I choose to eat there, but still, because my lovely wife is concerned about my health, my guess is she'd say, I don't care if you have a cafeteria or not. Here, this is what I want you to eat. And so what Fran says is what goes. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Melissa's smiling. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Two national political observations before we, we move on. First of all, the, the Nevada caucuses are going to be on, on Saturday, and it's pretty much any anybody's game. 
the interesting dynamic about Nevada, especially in the Democratic caucuses, the Democratic primary, is Nevada, unlike Iowa or North or New Hampshire, is heavily unionized. You know, if you think about Las Vegas, for example, you know, you, you've got people that belong to all the, the restaurant union, the casino workers union. It's, it's heavily unionized. And the, the unions in Nevada have a, a huge say. The largest union in Nevada, the, the culinary workers local, 60,000 members strong. Actually, everybody thought that they were going to be in the pocket of Joe Biden. Maybe because they see the problems the Biden campaign is having. What they're doing is they're they're not endorsing anybody. But Bernie Sanders is having a huge problem with the unions in Nevada. Now, you might say to me, Jeff, I don't understand that. Why would Bernie Sanders be having a huge problems with the unions, the unions in Nevada? Because three words, Medicare for all. Now, why? Why would that cause a problem? But here's an interesting rift in the Democrat Party. Typically, the union health plans are much better than the government health plans. My guess is the, the contracts and the health insurance available to the, the culinary workers, union workers, far exceeds what people would otherwise get on Obamacare. And I guarantee you, that it's a lot better coverage, cost, etc., than you would have under Medicare for All. So when you have the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens of the world talking about socialized medicine like they are, and that's what they're really talking about, that, that uh, a lot of the union workers are saying, okay, wait a second, that that sounds great for some people, but it's not so great for us because it's going to mean Less. We are not going to be as well off. Our coverage isn't going to be as good. Our services aren't going to be as good because we've got it pretty darn good now. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders, and this is this is going to play out. And again, Bernie Sanders could get the nomination by picking up, you know, twenty as long as as long as there's still you know eight nine however many candidates there are, Bernie Sanders could theoretically win the nomination by getting twenty five or thirty percent of the delegates state by state by state. That might lead to an electoral disaster, but it's the reality of what could very well happen. But it's another one of these reasons why you have a lot of mainstream Democrats who are terrified because. They, they recognize, like the union base to support, the, the unions that are one of the key core constituencies of, of the Democratic Party, they, they don't want Medicare for all because for their membership, they will end up worse off. So that, that's one of the things that, that Bernie Sanders is running into. On the flip side, and this was, this was the other issue that that broke while I was on vacation that motivated me to take to Twitter. And again, you can follow me. It's at Jeff Wagner 620. By the way, just a thought about what we were talking about the last hour. I, I did, I did tweet out that, that piece written by the professor from UW Madison saying that if, if none of us packed our kids lunches, school lunch programs would improve. I, I, I sent that out. It also, there, there was a picture accompanying it. I'm looking at the picture and one of our, our tweets made this point. When I was in school, I never saw a school lunch that looked this good. It's like it's got a big appetizing bowl of chili and apple slices and some cucumbers and tomatoes and a piece of cake and a thing of milk. That's not how my school lunches looked. But, you know, it's like, okay, for this particular piece, let's figure out, you know, how we can take the most dramatic 
and good-looking uh, food thing. In any event, the other thing that I tweeted out uh, during during my vacation, because I, I just had to comment on, was this, this whole story involving the Department of Justice, the Attorney General Bill Barr, and, and President Trump. In short, my comment to the President is, stop tweeting about the Department of Justice. And I understand whenever I criticize President Trump, I I get all these tweets and and texts and emails. But hear me out. The president is dead wrong on this one. And the quicker he knocks it off, the better he will be. Period. Let me review the bidding on this. Roger Stone, who is a sleazebag. I don't care if conservative, liberal. Roger Stone is a sleazebag. He's he goes back to the Nixon administration. If you want to watch an interesting um, documentary, you watch this. It's called uh, Get Me Roger Stone. And it was I, I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it was. But but he's a political trickster, a dirty trickster and stuff. He goes back to the Nixon administration and he has been on the periphery of Republican politics his entire life. But generally speaking, he's kind of a con man, and he's a braggart, and he's a bully. He's all these different things. I mean, he's not somebody that you want to be associated with, but he's been a buddy of Trump's for years and years and years. All right, fine. He gets indicted for lying to Congress as part of the the whole Russia investigation. All right. We know how the president feels about this, but he gets indicted. He gets convicted by a jury and he's awaiting sentencing. I think right now the sentencing skills scheduled for this week. The the prosecutors decide that they're going to recommend nine years. I don't know whether that's too much or not. But President Trump apparently gets involved, starts criticizing the prosecutors. The attorney general then overrules the rank-and-file prosecutor, something that almost never happens, based on my experience. And they decide they're going to go into court, and the Justice Department's going to make a, a much lower recommendation. All right? So, and, and the attorney general is now in the middle of this. I'm looking at a story. More than 1,100 former prosecutors and justice officials call for Bill Barr to resign over intervention in the Roger Stone case. Let me make a couple observations. First of all, like I say, Roger Stone is a sleazebag. Roger Stone is not worth one ounce of political capital. The president should know this. Bill Barr should know this. He, whatever happens to Roger Stone, Roger Stone deserves. All right, as I tweeted last week, I personally served under Bill Barr when he was the attorney general the first time under President Bush, the first President Bush. I've met him back in the day. And I, I think he's a real straight shooter, and I've always had the greatest respect for him. You know, he issued a statement last week saying the president's tweets are making it impossible for him to do his job. And I'm glad he is speaking out about that. The president should just stay out of day-to-day operations of the Justice Department. Now, the president, if he doesn't like something, that the Department of Justice is doing, if he doesn't like the prosecution of Roger Stone, if he doesn't like the sentencing recommendation that the department's prosecutors, the trial lawyers, came out with, if he doesn't like the sentence that the judge gives to Roger Stone, the president, he has pardon power. 
I mean, if he thinks this was this massive injustice that Roger Stone goes to prison for nine years for doing what he was convicted of doing, fine. President Trump, all he has to do is pull out his pen, type a three, have his secretary type a, a three sentence, you know, letter saying that he commutes or pardons Roger Stone. He signs it. Boom. It's done. But Trump should not be meddling in today operations of the Justice Department. It makes it impossible for the career prosecutors to do their job. And look, and I understand they're not perfect. And I understand if you look at some of the stuff that went on in the Russian investigation, all right, you, you have perhaps all sorts of reasons to say, I mean, is there a deep state? Is there stuff going on? But, but publicly criticizing the Department of Justice for decisions they make on criminal prosecutions that, by the way, lead to convictions, that, that doesn't add anything to the dialogue. And it does make it very, very difficult for, in this case, the attorney general to do his job. And more importantly, makes it very difficult for the rank and file prosecutors to do their job. Like I say, if the president doesn't like something the Department of Justice does, if the president doesn't like an outcome, if he doesn't like a sentence, pardon him. Now, candidly, like I say, I wouldn't spend one ounce of political capital on a guy like Roger Stone. He just doesn't deserve it. But the president should stay out of this until the Justice Department, until the criminal justice proceedings are finished. Then if you think there's an injustice, okay, you you can do what you want to do. But the meddling is bad. It just is. It is unseemly. And I think, you know, I understand that the president's not going to stop tweeting, and I understand that he feels that he's victimized and all these different things. But, you know, day-to-day operations of the Department of Justice – we really haven't had presidents who actively managed them. Well, Kennedy and his brother, Bobby Kennedy, they, they were very involved in the Department of Justice. Lyndon Johnson, certainly. But, you know, ever since Nixon left office, typically presidents have allowed the Department of Justice to operate freely. And again, if they think there's an excess, there's always something that you can do afterwards. You've got the pardon power. President Trump should knock it off, period. All right. When we come back. All right. They are America's oddest political couple. All right. Could you make it work yourself? I will explain. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, a quick prediction. I, the, the Harvey Weinstein, who is the major league Hollywood sleazebag, who's on trial, he's been on trial for the last several weeks, accused of sexual th- assault, Uh, The case is going to go to the jury. I think it's going to go to the jury today. I I have not followed the day-to-day operations of the case closely other than reading a lot of the stories. And when you're talking about cases of sexual assault, it's it's difficult to make predictions about verdicts unless you've actually been in the courtroom and you've had an opportunity to, to hear the the alleged victims testify and things like that. And, and because it's in federal court, it hasn't been televised. So you, you just had a count. So I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I, I will say this. Don't be surprised if Harvey Weinstein gets acquitted. Now, now, you might say to me, Jeff, 
that this guy is a major league sleazebag, to which I would say yes. And this is a guy who, you know, had women having sex with him constantly, and, and he was one of these powerful producers, and, and clearly there was this casting couch going on, and you had these, these women who, you know, wanted stuff from him, and so, you know, they, they submitted because they thought this was the way to get to the movies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and that all, all, all may well be true. The reason I say don't be surprised, and I'm not predicting an acquittal, because like I say, I wasn't in the courtroom watching the testimony, is because th- this case, in some respects, it's a prosecutor's nightmare when it comes to sexual assault, because the two women, now they introduced what they call other acts evidence. They brought in other women who said that they were sexually assaulted by, by Weinstein. But the two that are the subject of the criminal charges, in, in both cases, the women had sex with, with Weinstein that, that they say was, was forced. But for a prolonged period of time afterwards, they continued to have contact with him, including writing, you know, love letters to them, praise-heavy missives or letters that they sent, calling him a genius, seeking his help, finding work. Um, you know, it's just... And and I think in one of the two cases that there was actually there was acknowledged consensual sex afterwards. Okay, he he assaulted me on this occasion. But yes, we had a continuing relationship. And so the the problem from a prosecutor's perspective is that it's it's not a clean case. It's not like, oh, he jumped me. He forced me to have sex. And then I went and I reported it to the authorities and I never had anything to do with them. In this particular case, you have a long-standing relationship after after the act and, you know, lovey-dovey stuff going on. Now, I, do I think theoretically that that could, it could still, does it change necessarily the fact that it was sexual assault the, the first time and they continue to have relationships with him? I, I, I conceive that that could happen. I am just saying that from a prosecutor's perspective, you've you got to prove beyond you got to prove to 12 people unanimously beyond a reasonable doubt that this was an assault. It's tough to be able to tell that without watching the watching the, the, the victims and alleged victims and their testimony. So I don't know what really happened. I just will tell you as an outsider and somebody who's prosecuted at least a, a couple sexual assault cases, it's it's tough because this is the type of thing that screams reasonable doubt because the prosecutors are are going to have to sell the jury on the theory that yes this was non-consensual and that somebody who was sexually assaulted by someone could still go on afterwards to have a, a normal glowing positive at least in his expressed in letters and stuff relationship with with a guy and you know that may very well be true especially when you're dealing with Harvey Weinstein who was this incredibly powerful guy that was, you know, controlled people's future. So I, I take no position whether he's a rapist or not. He's clearly a slime bag. You know, I mean, the best case scenario would be for Weinstein that it wasn't sexual assault, but he ran this casting couch where, you know, people were expected to do these various things in order to, to get jobs. And, you know, they they did it, you know, and maintained positive relationships with him. That's That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is he's a brutal rapist. All right. I don't know what the jury is going to decide. I just say don't necessarily be surprised if it's an acquittal because it's it's a difficult prosecution. 
I give the prosecutors credit for, for taking it on. I, I do. And I will not criticize them if, if this ends up, if the guy ends up being acquitted, because it's a difficult case. But don't be surprised if it does result in acquittal. Stick around.